Well, good morning, friends and family. I said in the first service that uh, when you have to call people to attention more than once out of a time and connection, it's actually a good thing. It's a sign of a healthy church, that people like each other and want to be around each other, you know? So I'm glad that you guys are meeting one another and catching up on life. And uh, I, I want to introduce myself just because we're, we're having um, guests regularly, some from New Life North, some from the community. And uh, this is kind of a, a peculiar week. So my name is Jonathan Swindle. I'm the executive and worship pastor here. And I did the same thing twice today. So I don't know what they say when you make a mistake once, it's fool me once, shame on me, fool me twice, shame on you. But both times I forgot to introduce my colleagues and friends, Abby Burley and John Cornella, who were leading worship with us this morning. Guys, give them a hand. They were fantastic. Uh, I, yeah, so anyways, I'm going to say hi to Abby, but I don't see her. So thank you guys. Uh, the Duncans, who are the senior pastors here, Jade and Christy Duncan, they began the first segment of their sabbatical this week. So the next couple of weeks, I'll be doing a little bit more preaching, and I have some assistance in the worship leading ministry from the Greater New Life Worship World and some of my friends and colleagues there. So I'm really, really grateful to them and grateful to the rest of our team for adapting and adjusting and just going with the flow and doing it with a smile, and they did a fantastic job this morning. So great job, friends. Um, also... Oh, that was it. I was going to intro John and Abby, and I even made a note on my notes for pre-service when I did the call to worship, and I still missed it. Guys, we are in a series called How Do I, a series primarily based on the book of Proverbs, but the wisdom literature as a whole, and it's a series on the pursuit of wisdom. So how do I, and then every week we're, we're tackling a, a different subject, and it is not lost on me that I am the one speaking about using words well. No pressure, right? But some of the pressure was taken off because Desiree between services said, you know, that word was so good, I'm going to stay for second service. So that alleviated a little bit of the pressure, a little bit of the tension. But I, I haven't preached very much in the beginning of this year because I'm going to be doing a lot in the second half while the Duncans are gone. So I've been thinking and marinating on this topic for quite a while, and the Lord just showed me some of my foolishness and gave me a story for you to start this off. And this is beautiful. A few weeks ago, New Life was having kids camp all around the city at different park, or yeah, all around the city at different parks. Different congregations were hosting kids camp. So we were hosting a kids camp right over here at Austin Bluffs or uh, at Academy in North Carefree. Sorry, my hand got caught on this microphone. And I was the only one here at the office that day. And Pastor Jade and Rachel and Martha, they were all over there. And Pastor Jade called me right before they broke for lunch. And he said, hey, we've got some frozen pulled pork in the freezer left over from family talk. Would you mind pulling it out and putting it in the toaster oven to de-thaw it or defrost it so that I can feed the, the volunteers lunch? And I said, sure, no problem. But I have a, a lunch meeting, an appointment off-site, so I, I can't stay and monitor it. So I'll put it in. I'll put it in at a low temperature, set it for 20 or 25 minutes. But you've got to get back here to make sure that everything's good because nobody will be monitoring this meet. So about 15 minutes later, I get a text message from Pastor Jade in all caps, and it reads, Jonathan, I said roaster, not toaster. 
yeah, y'all know. That could have been real bad, but we still have a building and we have a good insurance policy. So we'd have been fine either way. Nobody else was in the building. And that's a silly story of my own ignorance and my mishearing, but it's one of thousands of examples that we all could give of how a single letter, not even a word, a difference of a letter between a T and an R, which happen to be really close together in the alphabet, doesn't make a difference, but toaster and roaster imply two very different things, both for cooking, but they serve different functions. Our words are incredibly powerful. I was thinking about a dozen different ways that I could start this message and I had all kinds of little funny things. I had some sappy YouTube videos and I decided to forego all of it. But I want, what I am gonna do before we dive into the scriptures and I am going to deluge you with scriptures this morning from Proverbs and some from Ecclesiastes, is I want to prove just how powerful a single sentence can be to change your life. And, and some of these are gonna, most of these are good, but some of these are, are, have negative implications. I'm gonna read just a few sentences. And, and I want us to channel the emotions that hit you when a single sentence is read. And I didn't do this in first service, but, but I actually think this can really work. So I'm gonna read a few sentences and I want you to be aware of how it hits you how it makes you feel, and what it could mean if it were real. None of these are real for you. Well, maybe they are, but I don't intend them to be. So if I said to you, someone has left you an inheritance, it's a sentence that would change your life. Will you marry me? Change your life. And even more importantly, the response could change your life, (laughs) right? Yes, I will, or no, I won't, will change your life. Will you forgive me? Yes, I will forgive you. I need help. These are single sentences, every one of them short, first grade level sentences. And if they occur to us in real life, they have the power to change our lives for the rest of our lives. And before we go any further with this message, and like I said, there are a ton of scriptures that we're going to look at this morning, and I'm going to try and do it briefly. I want to take a moment for us to be silent before the Lord, because it hit me in preparing for this, that when we talk about words, the tendency is to focus on which words I'm going to use. But what if the thought of wisdom is, am I going to use or should I use words at all? And I think the place where we acquire that level of discernment and maturity is in the place of silence before the Lord. So let's be silent before the Lord for just a moment, and then we'll get into the preaching of the word. Lord, we receive this silence as a gift to be still before you and recognize that your presence is here, that it has never not been here, that there is no inch of the universe that has not been pervaded by your presence for all of eternity. 
And we also know that you are at work. And I pray this morning that you would be at work in our hearts, be at work in our ears, and be at work in our mouths. We ask it in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And together we say, Amen. Amen. In the beginning, God created with a word. God, in the beginning, it says that the Spirit was brooding over the chaos, and then there are a series of sentences that God speaks. God uses language to create and to order. Then, in Genesis chapter 2, we see that God gives Adam and Eve the mandate not only to govern and to rule over the world, but a specific task to name the animals. And God, it it even says in some language that God validates and accepts the names that they give to the animals. We can learn right from the first two chapters of Genesis that language, that our words, that our communication are a gift to relate to one another, to relate to ourselves, and most importantly, to relate to God. And then they are a gift to fulfill the human mandate, to rule over and to govern and to steward God's good world. And then what happens immediately? The serpent takes the gift, takes the words that God gave to people and distorts them with deception, calling into question who this God is who gives the good gifts. So then deception enters, lying enters, and then blame enters, all through the use of words. God gives us a gift to help us relate and order the world. And the enemy capitalizes and distorts through deception to break trust and create competition and suspicion in all human relationships. Proverbs 18.21, this is a verse we are all so familiar with. Thank you, it is on the screen. The tongue has the power of life and death, and those who love it will eat its fruit. Notice, it says that it has the power of life and death, and that we will eat its fruit. It doesn't say what kind of fruit. The kind of fruit that springs up from whatever kind of words we sow is the kind of fruit that we will eat. Will we be the kind of people who sow words of life and therefore bear the life in the community that God has given us and entrusted to us? Or will we be the kinds of people who speak death? Because if we are, we will certainly eat its fruit. Words change the way that we view ourselves. And words in culture, the media, social media, they transmit ideas. But specifically today, I want to hone in on the kind of words that we use in Christian community. Because I believe that for us, the word of the Lord is that we would learn to be discerning in the kinds of words, in the timing of our words, and the way that we deliver and give our words one to another for the sake of the health of the community. So today, I want to emphasize that words are the invisible fabric on which communities are built. There is this old adage, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. Never a more untrue statement has been said. But you know what? It's truthfulness aside 
it's impossible. It's impossible to live in such a way, in such a hardened way. Well, I say it's impossible. Maybe there is such a depraved state where someone could get. But I, I would trust that none of us are at that place. And the, the author of the Proverbs assumes that that is impossible and certainly not the goal. A matter of fact, he just said, the author of Proverbs says that life and death are in the tongue. And yet we live in a culture that wants us to be numb to one another in difficulty and open to one another only when things are good. But psychologically and sociologically, that's impossible. You cannot be numb to certain kinds of emotions. You're either numb in your emotions or you're alive in your emotions. This is true. This is true scientifically. If we become the kind of people who are hardened to the truth that we share with one another, then we will be hardened with the difficulties and also hardened with the joys. But if we are the kinds of people who are soft and tender and open to one another, then we will bear the brunt of words of life as well as words of death, which is one of the many, many reasons we have to be careful with our words. The wisdom literature warns against three kinds, at least, of harmful speech. So this week, uh, fortunately for me, a number of the other New Life pastors have already preached this message. Don't worry, mine is pretty different. But I listened to a couple of them, and Pastor Andrew over at East mentioned that there were well over 100 verses in the book of Proverbs alone that deal with speech, which doesn't include verses that deal with listening. So I decided to go on a little tour of the book of Proverbs this week, and I went to explore all of them. And about seven or eight chapters in, I realized I was seeing a trend. It seemed to me that there were three categories of negative speech that were warned against, and there was one large single category, which I'll just call words of wisdom, words of the wise, words of the righteous, that were spoken of in the affirmative. The first negative kind of speech, kind of harmful speech, is what the author of Proverbs call or refer to as malicious speech. Or we might say slanderous speech, or in the church, church world, the word would be gossip. Words that are used that destroy relationships with one another. Chapter 9, verse 11, or excuse me, I said that backwards. Chapter 11, verses 9. With his mouth, the godless destroy their neighbor, but through knowledge, the righteous escape. Chapter 16, verse 28. A perverse man stirs up dissension, and a gossip separates close friends. The Old Testament professor Ellen Davis calls gossip the dry rot of Christian community. It is the dry rot of Christian community because it comes in, and when it comes in, it is typically not immediately recognized, and then the words are spoken, and it is recognized, but it's too late. It's too late. There is a verse here. Let's see. Chapter 18, verse 8, Everett, I think it's up there. The words of a gossip are like choice morsels. They go down to a man's inmost parts. Well, what does this mean? This verse is actually in there twice, word for word. What does it mean? It means that the words of a gossip in the speaker and in the hearer are ingested in such a way where almost immediately they are indiscernible from the rest of the being. 
so that when you speak gossip and when you hear gossip, it's like a dandelion petal that you flick into the wind. There's no way to get them all back. You can't retract it. You can't say, I'm so sorry, I didn't actually mean that. The seeds are there. Now we serve a redeeming God. We serve a restoring God. But those words will not likely be forgotten. And the work that is required to negate them and to overcome them is so much more difficult than it is to say them. The words of a gossip are the dry rot of Christian community. They breed suspicion and undermine the common trust that binds people together, right? This is what gossip does. Gossip says, I know that you have an idea about this person, but let me tell you what they're really up to. It comes under the disguise of being helpful. That's what, that's why so, I mean, if we recognize gossip before it was spoken, none of us would say it because we're good Christian Bible-believing people. We know gossip is terrible, but somehow in our minds, we justify gossip under the disguise of, I'm actually being helpful to this person. I'm sparing them. I'm sparing them future harm. And I'm here to tell you this morning, it is evil for you and it's evil for the hearer and it will destroy the fabric of a community. Gossip, slander, and malicious speech always work to separate and destroy by casting judgments and categorizing people. And I guarantee you, if I ask this question, I'm not gonna ask, how many of you like being categorized? Every one of you say, I hate being categorized. I hate when people put me in a box. I hate it when people act like they know the fullness of me and they just met me. But this is what we assume and presume when we participate with gossip. Number two, it is deceptive or lying speech. And early on in the Proverbs and at the end, there are both in those two sections, there's a lot. And, and oftentimes, let me just give you a clue, a, a cue, excuse me, into the reading. Proverbs uses a negative connotation with the adulteress a lot. And that is anything but a slight at women, at women. Actually, the book of Proverbs, the author of Proverbs, speaks of women by and large in very positive ways. It's a metaphor for the seductive nature of a metaphorical adulteress. So I, I just want to make that really clear if you're reading this and you're unfamiliar with scripture. It is not speaking negatively about women. Actually, over the arch of the 31 chapters, Proverbs speaks very positively about women, especially for its time. So here is a verse with persuasive words, chapter 7, verse 21. She led him astray. She seduced him with her smooth talk. Chapter 14, verse five. A truthful witness does not deceive, but a false witness pours out lies. Lying is an attempt to bypass difficulty and create a shortcut to get what we want or to avoid what we don't want. Think about it. This is why deception works for a short time and why it's attractive because deception is a shortcut to getting what we want or avoiding what we don't want. The problem is it never lasts. Chapter 26, verse 26, it will not last forever. Actually, I'm gonna turn it, oh, I'm already turned there. Chapter 26, I'm gonna read 24 through 26. There are three verses here in a row all about deception. A malicious man disguises himself with his lips 
but in his heart he harbors deceit. Though his speech is charming, do not believe him. For seven abominations fill his heart. His malice may be concealed by deception, but his wickedness will be exposed in the assembly. Deception and lying will come to find you out. Remember that first verse we read? Hold The tongue holds the power of life and death, and those who love it will eat its fruit. Lying is certainly one of the most prominent ways that we sow words of death. And they will come to find all of us who partake out. The third kind of harmful speech is the kind that I think we are all the most susceptible to. At least as I was preparing for this, this is what hit me as this is where we should spend a little more time and try and be precise. Foolish or careless speech. This is the kind of speech that intends to be helpful but actually breeds death in the receiver over the long haul. This is the kind of speech that by and large, I think flows from our uncomfortability with silence and our discomfort with the complicated nature of living in this broken world. And so we become like Job's friends who for a very short time are able to keep our mouths shut but the more people share their struggles and difficulties, I just have to tell them why they're in the midst of difficulty. And in that moment, we partner with the deceiver. In those moments where we cannot bear one another and bear the difficulties and the complications of this life without thinking that we're going to save one another by a nugget or by a scripture verse that we think they've never heard, guys, You've all been on the receiving end of this. We've all been on the receiving end of bearing our soul to someone for them to then respond with a trite response. And the assumption is that we, we, we think we're being helpful, but if we really stop to think about it, we know that most of the difficulty that most of us come by, I know I'm saying most a lot, but I, I don't want to speak in broad statements, sweeping statements, the difficulties of this life, by and large, are not because we were taken surprise and we don't know how to do things. It's life is complicated and life is messy and stuff happens. And we are human beings who serve a God who in the end is going to make all things right and is active right now, but our saving grace is that God is not done working yet. And so in the midst of God working, which by the way, most of the time it takes really long, God, we have to learn to be the kind of people who can bear one another without letting our tongues run off, without letting our tongues say things that are trite and careless and minimize the difficulties and the pains that people walk through. Let's read a couple more verses. Chapter 13, verse 3. He who guards his lips guards his life, but he who speaks rashly will come to ruin. Chapter 18, verse 2. A fool finds no pleasure in understanding, but delights in airing his own opinions. We assume, I've already said this, but I'm going to say it more precisely, that people don't change because of a lack of information. And we then assume 
We have the information they need. But let me tell you, if we believe Proverbs 18, 21, what people actually need is to be strengthened in their core. They need life to be spoken to them so that they will be strong enough to do the things that they already know that they need to do deep down. Most of us are not not praying enough or not serving enough or not giving enough, not because we don't know that we should, but because deep down there is some kind of fear, there is some kind of weakness, there is some kind of missing part of our identity, and what we need is the strength and life and encouragement that comes from people in the body of Christ to speak right to our core, the life of God into us, not give us trite wisdom that makes us feel like we have appeased our conscience, but we've actually done nothing but harm people. All right, I'm done meddling. Y'all ready to move on? So what kind of speech does reflect a life of wisdom? If careless speech and deceptive speech and slanderous or gossip speech, slanderous speech or gossip are the kind that we are warned against, what kind of speech are we encouraged to? Well, let's look. Chapter 10, verse 11. The mouth of the righteous is a fountain of life, but violence overwhelms the mouth of the wicked. The kind of speech that reveals a heart pursuing wisdom is life-giving. It's life-giving. That doesn't mean it's easy, and that doesn't mean it always sounds good, but it's life-giving. In the end, it is encouraging us to move closer to God not further away from him. Number two, 1032, the lips of the righteous know what is fitting, but the mouth of the wicked only what is perverse. It is appropriate, it is timely, and those require discernment. The speech of the wise is discerning speech. Pastor Brady, when he preached his version of this message, said, you can be right and unwise. And I fully agree with him. And I would add on to that to say, I think that is the most dangerous place for a Christian to live, where they are right and they are justified in what they say or what they believe or what they wield against other people. But they are being unwise and undiscerning. They are lacking wisdom. They are lacking discernment. The lips of the righteous know what is fitting. What is fitting? What does this person really need? Or when you're speaking to and about yourself, because you may not all do it out loud, but you do it in your head all day, all the time. What do I need, Holy Spirit? What kind of words? Do I need to be honest and vent to you right now? Or do I need to open my word and proclaim what is true about you? There is a time for both. And we need discernment to know, do I need to be honest with my situation or do I need to be honest with the truth of who you are? What does my soul need in this moment? Chapter 15, verses 1, 2, and 4, a gentle answer turns away wrath. Yeah, all the parents in this place are speaking that to their kids all the time. But a harsh word stirs up anger. The tongue of the wise commends knowledge, but the mouth of the fool gushes folly. The tongue that brings healing is a tree of life, but a deceitful tongue crushes the spirit. So what kind of speech reflects a life of wisdom? Gentle speech, healing speech. Can we become the kind of people who learn to speak what is fitting, what is gentle, 
all toward the aim of bringing healing to one another and healing in the body of Christ. A wise man's heart, chapter 16, 23, guides his mouth and his lips promote instruction. At the end of the day, what Proverbs says about our speech more than anything is that it flows from our heart. That we can work really, really hard to become better orators, to learn social skills of when to speak and when not to speak, and we should work on those things to try and muster up enough self-control to just keep my trap shut. But in the end, our speech tells on us. It tells us where our heart is at. If we are quick to be the kind of people who are speaking about other people in negative ways, the Holy Spirit might be wanting to reveal that there's insecurity, that there is fear, that there is something unhealed inside of us. We can tweak our words, but ultimately, by and large, our words are always going to flow from the essence of who we are. And how strong our character is and how mature we are in Christ will be revealed by the kinds of words that we speak to and about one another. So how can we become the kinds of people who use our words for healing rather than harm? This is the question we all want to know. I don't want to lash out at my kids. I don't want to make slight comments to to my colleagues about my boss. I don't want to be the kind of person who musters or uh, hushes words under my breath about my spouse when they're not listening. I don't want to be the kind of person who in prayer only says the things that I know I'm supposed to say and I'm not honest with God. All of these kinds of things are issues with our words. So how can we learn to be the kinds of people who our words produce healing and not harm? The first, I think, is not very intuitive. It is learn to listen. Learn to listen. Learn to listen. And one of the ways we can do that very practically is practice silence. Our world, the world we live in, does not afford us very many opportunities, naturally speaking, to live in silence. If you don't do it intentionally, especially if you have kids in your home, it's likely not going to happen. And I think, as I already said, one of the main reasons that we are so quick to rush into foolish chatter or careless speech is because simply we're just uncomfortable with silence, particularly in the presence of other people. And if we can learn to be comfortable in silence and just bear the presence of one another, we'll save ourselves a lot of harmful speech. There was a Hebrew tradition, and it's actually a tradition that is carried on in many monasteries, where there is no speaking before and through the breakfast meal. Because the morning silence should be broken slowly. Now, some of us, that's not a choice. I see Sarah laughing. All of us with little kids, that's not a choice. Our kids wake up screaming. I get it. I get it. I'm not saying we have to practice this. But there is a recognition in our Christian tradition and in the Jewish Jewish tradition before. Sorry. The irony of using our words well, and I can't get them out. I can't get my words out. There is a wisdom in entering into the day slowly 
first listening for God before we are speaking. Dietrich Bonhoeffer says this, we should be silent in the morning because God should get the first word. So let me challenge you. If you are in a place where you can control your home environment to this extent, practice some time in the beginning of the day. Don't start with some crazy ambitious goal of 30 minutes of sitting in silence. Rude awakening, let me tell you, it's hard to do. So start with five minutes, and then once you got five minutes, do it a couple of times throughout the day. Then increase the time into whatever works for you, but be intentional. This is the ask. This is the challenge. Be intentional about practicing silence on purpose, because none of us are going to be good listeners if we can't learn to be comfortable in silent spaces. Much idle speech flows simply because we are uncomfortable in the silence. Chapter 10, verse 19, when words are many, sin is not absent, but he who holds his tongue is wise. You know what this verse doesn't say? Uh, Well, let me read that version. (laughs) Sin is not ended by multiplying words, but the prudent hold their tongues. I'm going to read this again. When words are many, it doesn't say when wrong words are many. In other words, to the previous point, you can be saying good things, right things. Maybe the person actually does even need to hear it, but that doesn't mean it's your place to say it. Learn to be comfortable in silence. Bonhoeffer also says this in in my favorite work of his life together. It's, if you haven't read it, it is a dense book, but it is really short less than 100 pages, and it is about life in Christian community and how God will stop at nothing to crush our ideals of what community should be so that we are free to live in its reality. Listen to what he says about listening. Many people seek a sympathetic ear and will not find it among Christians because Christians are talking when they should be listening. But Christians who can no longer listen to one another will soon no longer be listening to God either. They will always be talking, even in the presence of God. The death of the spiritual life starts here. That's a strong statement. The death of the spiritual life starts in talking when we should be listening to God. And in the end, there is nothing left but empty spiritual chatter. Those who cannot listen long and patiently will always be talking past others. And finally, they will no longer even notice. Let this not be said of us, New Life Midtown. Let us not be the kind of people who are speaking past one another and don't even have the awareness to know. And let us not be the kind of people who are sitting before God when he wants to be with us or he wants to impart something to our soul And we are chatting away, quoting Bible verses back to God. Let us be the kind of people who are humble enough to sit before him. Number two, what do we do? We learn to listen. And number two, pray for those who you are against. And I thought about the cliche, pray for your enemies. But that even sounds a little more accusatory than I wanted. Pray for those who you have the willingness to admit you are against. They may also be against you, 
but you feel against them, pray for them. Pray for them. Bonhoeffer also has some wisdom for this. In intercessory prayer, the face that may have previously been intolerable to me is transformed into the face of one for whom Christ died. That is a blessed discovery for the Christian who is beginning to offer intercessory prayer for others. As far as we are concerned, there is no dislike, no tension, no disunity, or no strife that cannot be overcome in intercessory prayer. Intercessory prayer is the purifying bath into which the individual and the community must enter every day. I do not speak this as someone who has mastery over any of this, by the way. Quick disclaimer. This hits me just as hard, if not harder, as it's hitting you. Last sentence. We may struggle hard with one another in intercessory prayer, but the struggle has the promise of achieving its goal. Intercessory prayer is what we do to purge the poison from the offenses in our lives. And you and I know, because we've experienced it on the receiving end and the, re-give, and the giving end, if you don't do something with those offenses, they will eat away at your soul. And one of the ways you can tell is listen to your language. I already said, our words tell on us. How negative are we? Especially when it comes to speaking about and to the people around us. And if everything you are saying is highlighting the deficiencies in the people around you, you can be sure that some part of your soul is sick. Some part of your heart is unhealed. There is good news, and I'm going to bring it in just a moment. Number three, confess your sinfulness and God's goodness. Confess your sinfulness and God's goodness. They go together. It is not enough to just confess your sinfulness. Because when you confess your sinfulness before the living God that we serve, you will be met with nothing but mercy. And then it is fitting for praises to be on the lips of God's people. It is important that we confess what is true in our circumstance, but also what is true about God and our lives transcendentally. Meaning, I know that it seems like everything in life is coming against me right now. Lord, it seems like every person that I speak to, I'm spewing harmful words and I can't control it. Lord, it seems that everything that is coming from my heart is filth and sinful and dirty. But I know that you have called me. I know that you have redeemed me. I know that you have saved me. I know that you have forgiven me. And I know that you are better than anything I could ever ask or imagine. And in this moment, Lord, I am choosing to rely on that, that you are so good that you will not let me get by with this kind of heart and this kind of mouth, that you will keep pursuing me until I am healed and whole and I'm a vessel fit for use of the living God. And this is what it looks like to learn to confess our sinfulness, but also confess the goodness of God and the goodness of who he is and the goodness of who he says that we are, even when we can't see it in ourselves. So Aaron, would you come? We're going to prepare our hearts to come to the table this morning. Ephesians 5, 19 has this fun little verse that all worship leaders study. Speak to one another with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Sing and make music in your heart to the Lord. 
I think in our evangelical Christianity, sometimes we miss the striking importance of this. There's a lot of things that are true that we could say to one another. But when we choose to submit ourselves to the corporate worship of the gathered people, and when we choose to submit our mouths to this word, it works both ways. Our heart is transformed. That when we allow our mouths to be filled with spiritual songs and hymns and psalms, and we speak the truth even when we don't feel it, eventually our heart will be transformed. And then what flows from our heart will be words of life and not words of death. And we will eat the fruit of words of life and no longer fruit of death. New Life Midtown, my challenge to us this morning is not to get your act together and speak better. I would love it if, that were, if it were that easy. My challenge to you is to be honest with yourself and to take the time to assess where your heart actually is. And if you're not sure how to do that, listen to yourself speak this week. Listen to your words, they'll tell on you. And you know what? God is faithful to forgive and God is faithful to transform and to heal. Let's stand together. We're going to come and receive uh, these packages come out the left side of your rows and then go back to your seat on the right side and I will lead us in a prayer of confession and then we are going to partake of the body and blood of Christ together. Come to the table of the Lord. All are welcome.